One of the other inmates has walked up known behind as the baby-faced killer, has been beaten to death in prison. He was bashed in the maximum security division of Barwon Prison near Geelong around lunchtime today. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last 10 years, if you're an Australian, you know the name Carl Williams. But for those of you who aren't Australians, let me explain... Well, actually, I won't do it. I'll hand it over to a mate of mine, Adam Shan. He's a journalist in Melbourne. I'll let Adam explain to you who Carl Williams was. Well, Carl Williams was a guy that that really fit into the whole um, drug scene that's created by the prohibition of drugs. I'm not saying we should legalise drugs, but but the, the war on drugs produces characters like Carl Williams, and there's a Carl Williams in every country, you know, where there are drugs consumed. And in particular, um, he got ahead and a few of his mates got ahead because we had a corrupt drug squad down here that, that began to deal in drugs uh, with the very people they were supposed to chase because it was just seen as you know, the money was huge and there was no one seen to be watching and, and um, you know, just, it just went on from there. But So Carl benefited from this. He had, a, he had two or three corrupt drug squad officers um, against two or three corrupt drug squad officers from his rivals and, um, you know, this, this sort of proxy battle went on between he and the, um, the, the, the main force in, in the sale of ecstasy pills here in Victoria, the Moran family, who had for two or three generations been onto every scam from starting price betting to sly grog to finally the production of drugs, um, you know, uh, in the 80s, 90s uh, until now. And uh, so this set off this chain of events. Um, normally... Uh, things stay quiet. There's um, you know, some conflict here and there, but you know business goes on because people realise that when the shooting starts, even corrupt police can't protect you. Um, <clears throat> so, but Carl, Carl um, was inexperienced in ways of the underworld, and uh, he he was um, uh, his rivals, the Morans, decided that he was becoming too big, and they decided to give him a warning, which was a .22 caliber slug to the uh, to his guts, you know, and uh, he should have got the message then that the fact they didn't kill him was uh, a message that, um, you know, we think you're okay. You know, (laughs) we can coexist in this world. As brutal as that sounds, that's what the message was, that they, you know, if if he was seriously a truly bad threat, they would have killed him outright, which they didn't. But Carl didn't take it that way. He he went about killing everyone. And over the space of the next uh, 10 years, um, no, sorry, six years, I should say, um, he killed at least 10 of his rivals and was involved in a couple of other ones as well. So um, he um, and he just thought this would just go on forever. That, that somehow, you know, he could he could you know, walk off the stage at some stage and life and, and life would go on. But uh, he 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 was sentenced to uh, 38 years um, uh, jail, and he would have been in there till he was 71. But unfortunately, um, one of his cellmates, who who was one of his mates. Um, previously got the uh, stem of an exercise bike and dealt him a savage blow or eight savage blows and killed him. And why would he have done that? What's the, what's the best theory you've heard as to why one of his mates turned on him inside? 
Well, the the um the big thing has been the big conspiracy theory is that oh, it must be one of these former corrupt uh, uh, coppers who's now standing trial for a murder, and Carl was going to give evidence against that guy. Um, he um he he was supposed to have financed this hit, but that's far less it's far less likely than the than the classic situation in jail of where you you're in close quarters with people. Um, it might just be that that's my newspaper, mate, and you did that last week and you did it the week before. And now I'm going to get you. You know, it may well be that. Um, but there was concerns because the, uh, the state was so eager to put uh, this particular policeman and others in jail. They offered to pay the school fees of Carl Williams' daughter um, and, until she finished school, something like ten thousand dollars a year for the next ten years. In addition, they were going to pay um, a, a tax bill, three quarters of a million dollars, uh, for his father. Um, they were so keen they were going to do this, but that outraged members of the public and it may well have outraged people inside as well because that's the last thing you want to be in a, in a jail as an informer. Um, so there's a couple of theories, but my favourite is the fact that it was just uh, this guy who murdered him uh, may well, he's a, a guy that never wanted to come out of jail. He was, he was content to be in there. He's a jailhouse leader um, and uh, he may well just be been cementing his reputation as the man who killed Carl Williams. Right, so it doesn't take any anything more than that. It, it often doesn't, and I, and I think people always go for the elaborate conspiracy theory when really the the, the, the simple story often is the one that that, that actually sticks. And I, and I think we might find that's the case in this. You heard at the beginning of the show, Carl Williams on radio in Melbourne from a few years ago, accusing the Victorian police of entrenched corruption he's not the only one you might think well convicted uh, criminal drug dealer convicted murderer uh, that you know his allegations don't mean anything but when you have somebody like former police officer Simon Illingworth he actually worked in the equivalent of the internal affairs department of the Victorian police he's also come out talking about entrenched police corruption in Victoria wrote a book about it called filthy rat and then you also had a retired Supreme Court judge in Victoria, Don Stewart, who also called for a royal commission into Victorian police corruption. He said that the force was riddled with corruption and that the Office of Police Integrity, which is a department that's been set up to investigate these claims of police corruption, was unable to deal with it. Interestingly, the whole thing came from a, a failed piece of law enforcement where the, um, in response to the burgeoning speed trade, uh, ecstasy trade, which is all basically produced from local um, ingredients, uh, uh, pseudoephedrine and a bunch of other stuff you can get locally, as opposed to importing cocaine or heroin, whatever, which, which requires major organization, getting people to, at both ends of the transaction. It's difficult for local crims to achieve. So speed was, was just blowing out of all proportion here in Victoria. So they, they got this idea that they would themselves send precursor chemicals into the underworld um, with willing villains, informers, who would then take them to other villains. They would then track those, um, those ingredients to the speed labs and they would bust them. And it worked very, very well. The first couple of years, they tripled their, their seizures of, of labs and their busts and so it was working very well. But unfortunately, the temptation, you know, when they saw the amount of money being made by these guys, they'd, they'd bust into houses, right? And they'd find the lab and they'd find, say, $100,000 in cash. And the crim would say, never seen it before, not mine. So what do you do in that circumstance? You're a police sergeant on $70,000. you are being offered $100,000 and, and no one seems to want it. Um, the temptation was extreme. Some people, um, you know, resisted it. Quite a few did not. 
So that, that really undermined the entire drug squad. So what happened there, all the cases that they were working on these people, um, they had to be um, suspended. Uh, Carl Williams and two or three other people uh, were suddenly given bail and uh, let out on the streets because they had to prosecute the policemen first. So it gave these guys a get-out-of-jail-free card for three or four years, and they, and they used it. They were busy, uh, Carl in particular. I mean, he, um, he had something like $20 million worth of, um, of product uh, when he was busted. Uh, he, he murdered several people. Uh, so it was really a complete breakdown of the, of the uh, system of justice here in Victoria. And we see this around the world, Cameron, that, uh, that drugs corrupt every single level of society. It's just, uh, and, and this is what's happened here, and it, it ended up in this extraordinary bloodletting. Hmm, corrupt drug squad cops, busting dealers, finding large amounts of cash, taking it, pocketing it, and using it to meet their own agenda. Does this sound familiar to you? Detective Mackey placed four bricks of cocaine into two evidence bags. He then took the two remaining bricks and placed it into a weapons bag, which he immediately handed to Detective Indrell. As I was going through the truck, I found some guns and two bags of cocaine. You saw Detective Vendrell park the truck and go inside the apartment building? Yes, ma'am. And no one went in or out of the truck between the time he left and the time you stole? No, ma'am. All right, Slappy, you start talking! Man, I don't All right, fine. You're not a witness, and you're an arrest. And this here is just enough to make you a trafficker. You can't do that, man. What? Plus drug dealers? You just made my quota for the week. Come on. I mean, you know, there were, there's not exactly a Mackie amongst this lot. Uh, he hasn't killed one of his own, but yeah, it's a very good example. And I, you know, I think the Shield actually got at a lot of the, you know, the the, the real issues with law enforcement. That that crime, you can't eradicate crime. You won't eradicate drugs. It's a status quo management exercise all the time, you know. And um, and all, and particularly in a situation where we've seen in America the uh, the Comstat model of law enforcement, which is all about numbers, you know, and uh, comparing numbers to last year and it, it just skews all the law enforcement uh, coefficients to where people will will pick on certain or cops will pick on certain kinds of offenses to to rack up uh, numbers you know it's not about the law enforcement and often you see in in areas um, of New York and, and Melbourne other big cities where in areas that have uh, a high crime rate uh, in the past people lose face with the police because they don't follow up they don't they don't actually resolve anything it's all about the numbers so people stop reporting crime, so you get an artificial drop in the numbers. You say everything's fine in this, but in fact, people just aren't reporting crime anymore. And this is what happened in Melbourne. You see it in other cities around the world that um, it's much more than the numbers. And so often policing is not about making an arrest. It's about being seen to be there and actually you know, um, being a peace officer as well as a law enforcement officer. So now they want me to go. Well, the way she expressed it is that she wanted you to stay if you could come to your senses. Come to my senses. She wants me to juke the stats for Carcetti this quarter and the next. Hide the crime, get him elected as governor, and make her the mayor. So do it. Burrell juke them before you. Warren Frazier before him. And after you go on Rawls or whoever will juke them, so what? I'll swallow a lie when I have to. I've swallowed a few big ones lately. But the stacked games, that lie, it's what ruined this department. Shining up shit and calling it gold so majors become colonels and mayors become governors. Pretending to do police work while one generation fucking trains the next town not to do the job. Juking the stats. Excuse me? 
making robberies into larcenies, making rapes disappear. You juke the stats and majors become colonels. They here before. Have you ever seen that TV show, The Wire? I have seen bits. I, I want to get the whole series and watch that. I, everyone I speak to seems to watch it ex- except me. I've seen a bit of it, but uh, it's but the wire I believe is all about that. It's about the um, you know because we had this. I mean, we had um, uh, the um, the police chief that uh, that brought the broken windows model, which I think the wire deals with extensively. Uh, William Braddon, I think his name is. He uh, he he came down here recently and uh, was on all the all, all the radio shows saying you know. Oh, we, you've got to do the same thing. You, you, you've got to start with the fear evaders, the people that break windows. That's the that's the um, that's the harbinger for sort of social disorder. That if you if you stop those ones, if you march people out of the subway for not paying paying their fares, people will see that. They'll say that, that, see there's cops on the beat, and it's uh, you know and and you'll gradually stem. And this happened in the numbers in New York. Remarkably, it did happen. Um, but there are now now academics. Who are looking at, the, at at what happened and saying there's actually another explanation, which is which is, I think is far more persuasive, that we saw in New York City the abolition of abortion in the 70s. So by the 90s, you had far less kids, far less family breakdowns, you had far less kids without fathers, all this kind of stuff, and and it was translated into lower uh, delinquency rates. And I think it's a pretty persuasive argument because uh, I think always crime starts with the family. If you if you want to get police to stop your, your, your crime problem, it's too late. It's got to start with families. It's got to got to strengthen the society, not just lock people up. That's the freakonomics argument, right? Going back to Roe versus Wade. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, getting back to this uh, corrupt cop scenario, I mean, obviously, as you said, not just a Melbourne problem, but it's a worldwide problem, particularly when there's so much money uh, available out there for people to be bribed. I mean, again, how do you think we, we deal with this? How, how do you have a police department that's free of corruption? Well, I think you've got to – I'm in Victoria. I've been banging on for about seven years. We need some sort of royal commission We need a, or a standing crime commission. We don't have one. We have these funny little Band-Aid institutions, one called the Office of Police Integrity um, and the Ombudsman – um, uh, two or three other ones that's names escape me, they're so pointless, uh, rather than, see, governments can't risk to, to let people see how the system works. And uh, my argument is that with the Royal Commission, it's not just about locking people up, it's about showing the public how the system works. It's transparency, you know, and I think that's what politicians, unless they're coming into government, unless they just won an election and they want to discredit their 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 you know, the previous government, they don't do this. They much rather just cling along and say, everything's fine, look at the numbers, you know, look at the institutions that we put together that almost address the issue. Um, but uh, I think really in Australia, though, it's really about a, a fair income discussion on on drugs and the, and what what the prohibition of drugs has done uh, in terms of you know you can make something illegal but not unpopular. And I think that's what's happened here. That uh, that uh, you know, and the, the the drug use we're seeing is so widespread, and 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 the kids. Um, particularly on ecstasy, are not dying. You know, they're not they're not getting the message that drugs kill them. They're seeing their parents being killed by nicotine, alcohol, and the legal drugs. So you've got this kind of uh, dissonance there, um, and I think that tends to corrupt everything, including the police, because they're they're humans. You know, I was dealing with a guy up in Queensland recently who was a policeman who um, he. Um, um, he had a girlfriend that that, that had uh, you know, like to take a few pills and and you know he was staying in her flat in, in in Brisbane and the police raided 
And this was, wasn't about the drugs at all. It was about a, a power struggle within his police station. But the drug issue was used to marginalise him and kick him out of the force. You know, and that's hardly good policy. It's hardly a good outcome, you know. So it's just, it just tends to skew everything, this whole, this whole issue. I think a lot of people might be surprised if they actually knew what the stats about drug deaths in Australia are. Carl Williams was a manufacturer of ecstasy. Now, according to the statistics, uh, from the years 2000 to 2008, over an eight-year period in Australia, uh, uh, somewhere around 100 Australians died from ecstasy. Over around about 100 in eight years. Every year in Australia, according to the ABS, the Bureau of Statistics, over 3,000 Australians die as a result of alcohol. So that's 100 from ecstasy over eight years versus 3,000 a year from alcohol. Professor Jake Narman, who's the director of Queensland's Alcohol and Drug Research Centre, was quoted uh, last year as saying ecstasy was a, quote, lesser evil than binge drinking. He said ecstasy was relatively benign if taken in small quantities, and when young people switch from a substantial amount of alcohol to a small amount of ecstasy, I don't think that's a bad trade at all. It is not likely that one pill on a Saturday night poses the same dangers as frequent binge drinking. Again, this man is the director of Queensland's Alcohol and Drug Research Centre. Surprisingly enough, still director even after having said that. When I read that quote, I thought, well, I bet you he didn't keep his job very long, but he's still there. We'll have to get him on for a chat. Drug-related deaths in Australia account for almost one in five deaths among all age groups. Tobacco is responsible for about 82%. Alcohol is responsible for about 16%. Add those up, 82 and 16, 98% of drug-related deaths in Australia are a result of tobacco and alcohol. That leaves 2% for ecstasy, heroin, cocaine, crack cocaine, and uh, anything else you want to point a finger at. And yet, if you look at what we read about in the newspapers, what we hear about in the media, what the government likes to talk about day after day, month after month, year after year, it's not the amount of people that are dying from these things. Now, to be fair, we do have a lot of discussion about tobacco. But and and you know, we, we've seen that the Australian government are trying to make it harder for people to smoke. Being in the cigar business, I feel the effects of that directly. There's new legislation coming in at the moment that's increasing the taxes on tobacco again. But the people that are selling cigarettes, which you know, I have to say is the, the main cause of tobacco-related deaths, it's certainly not cigars or pipes, um, aren't being put in jail, whereas Carl Williams was put in jail in part for the murders that he'd committed, but in part because he was an ecstasy dealer. Ecstasy's illegal, tobacco's not. Tobacco's responsible for 82% of drug-related deaths in Australia. 
Do you see any intelligent discussion happening at a political level in this country about decriminalization of, let's say, marijuana or ecstasy? None, none. If you, if you put your head up, you'll get it knocked off by the popular press. You know, you're soft on drugs. You know, it's just this sort of ridiculous thing. And yet we're not soft on drugs. I mean, our society's fully medicated every day on caffeine, nicotine, alcohol, marijuana, you name it. It's all out there. And it's, it's sort of we have this situation where we, where, we, where we believe or we tell people we're winning the war, but we're not. It's just proliferating. And, and um, so politicians are not brave enough to actually engage with this. I remember talking to Peter Costello about cocaine once, you know, and, and uh, venturing the view that uh, cocaine was very widely used amongst the political classes, you know. And he said to me, he looked at me and he said, oh, one sniff and you're addicted, aren't you? I said, no, you're not, actually. So there's, and there was the guy that would have been the prime minister, just having no knowledge about one of these, one of these cornerstone issues in, you know, for social policy. But we just, we, just try to, we just try to iron over it and say the war on drugs will fix this put more money, have more coppers, lock more people up, and it's just not working. I mean, you know, you're locking up addicts who really should be in hospitals, for instance. You know, it just, it just doesn't work. And, and, and unfortunately, we don't have an informed debate, and, and um, uh, you know, more's the pity. You took a swipe at the popular press there as a, you know, a, a working participant of the popular press. Why do you think the popular press takes this black and white stance against it? Well, because I think they've got a they've got an aging readership, that's for sure. And I think it's and the the world has changed a lot, and the the conservative uh, you know readers and and part of our population is genuinely frightened by this, you know. And so they um you know and I think the the popular press tends to just give them what they want. It says let's lock people up, let's let's demonise drug users, let's demonise you know anyone anyone involved in this, you know. And so it's 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 much easier to have debates where you, where you have folk devils, and I think that's what uh, has largely happened. Um, so anybody who who steps up and tries to to say something else gets shouted down, and and uh, or you're glamorising crime. Back to that earlier point, you know, you're glamorising drug use. No, you're saying how, how ultimately it is false and empty, and and it, it may well kill you. And there are much better things you can do, but let's 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 be cognizant of the fact that. Drugs operate at all levels in society, the legal ones and the illegal ones. And it strikes me that with certain drugs like marijuana and ecstasy, from what I hear out there, it's you know, a very, very large percentage of the population that want to and choose to use them on a regular basis. Trying to tell all of them that they're wrong is just fighting a losing battle, obviously. Absolutely. When you see the cultural positivity towards alcohol, yet at the same time, Alcohol kills three times more Australians than all illicit drugs combined. At a, at a political level, what happens with that kind of a factoid? I mean, do you get any politicians in this country that can make sense out of that? No, no they don't because, because, look at, because the government's one of the big pushers of alcohol and tobacco. I mean, that's the thing. They make more money from pushing alcohol through excise, um, state governments, than, um, you know, than the pushers themselves. Same with tobacco. It's that, that's, that, that's the thing. We, we, our, our society runs on the taxes from the sin taxes, if you like, you know, uh, gambling as well. Let's include that as well. It's an addiction. And so we, what do we do? Do we suddenly make everything illegal? No, we can't, but, but we, we pick on certain things. And, um, uh, and obviously, the, you know, the, uh, it, it's, it's not going to get any better until we address that fact that, uh, that, that our society is, is, is awash with drugs and, w- and we are actually benefiting from it. It pays for our hospitals and our schools and our roads. Alcoholism, 
and addiction to nicotine. I first met Adam a few years ago when he was on the show after he had a book come out called Big Shots, which was one of the original books that hit the Australian market talking about Carl Williams and the, the gangland wars in Melbourne. He's got a new book that's just come out called, called King, of King of Thieves. The Adventures of Arthur Delaney and the Kangaroo Gang. It was about a group of shoplifters, one in particular, Arthur Delaney, who came from Sydney, went to Britain in the 60s and just took on the um, all, this, all the high-level stores, the Harrods, the Asprey's, the Garrard's, Selfridge's, and stole hundreds of millions of dollars worth of diamonds in particular. And um, this this uh, began about 62, and by about 67, there were 100 uh, villains from Australia and New Zealand, men and women, who were working in, in sort of loosely, you know, connected gangs um, and just running riot. And the interesting thing was because the stores um, realised how vulnerable, vulnerable they were to this form of thieving, they didn't want to prosecute them too much. They didn't really help the police. They would make their police reports, get the insurance, and move on with life. And um, so as a result, a lot of the story was never really told. Interpol was never very strong in those days, so there wasn't a lot of connection with um, with Australian police and so forth. So um, the story just lay dormant, if you like, for quite a while until I met the the widow of Arthur Delaney and, um, and some of the, the surviving gang members in Sydney, and then I went to London and, and France as well and, and, and tracked down some other ones. And um, just an amazing story and such a counterpoint to the whole drug story because it, it goes – this starts before drugs hit, in the days when uh, you didn't have gangsters. You had old-style crooks, and crooks were about, um, you know, they liked law and order because, uh, you know, it, prosperity allowed them to do what they did. You know, the bigger the store, the more people, the more, you know, the less aware people are of theft and so forth. So they fit into this world and, and, and survive very nicely without killing anybody. No violence, no shooting, nothing, you know. So... And they and they would do their thieving in broad daylight. So and the the police that, that chased them had a remarkably, uh, I guess, positive view towards them. You know, they, they, they oh the old Aussies we liked them. They were they were nice people. You know, <laughs> gentlemen criminals. Gentlemen, and that's right. And that, that that's the way they saw themselves. And if they were caught, they just bribed the um, the uh, you know the policeman. It was it was nearly as corrupt in in Scotland Yard as it was in New South Wales and 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 uh, Victoria back in those days. And what happened to the kangaroo gangs? Well, the um, they were largely cleaned out. I met the policeman who who really started the uh, the counteroffensive. He went through all the criminal records offices in in United Kingdom and brought together all these disparate files of people who'd been arrested or suspected of larceny and and shoplifting and so forth. And liaised with some police officers back in Australia, compared photographs and things, and realised they had a gang operating that, that, that was. And then they, then they, it was one of those classic stories of intelligence where they put, um, you know, little blokes on, on motor scooters and, and bicycles and hung in pubs and, and, and actually took pictures and, and, and worked out where they were meeting and what they were doing. Um, and then one by one, they picked them off over about six years. And by 75, the, um, the, the, the bulk were gone, except for our man Arthur, who was uh, a cut above the rest, and he moved into, into Europe. And was operating in Paris and Rome and you name it for another 15 years. Got a lot of jail in the end. Got about five years worth of jail. Um, he was caught in Spain in, in at about 70, late 70s. And uh, when he finished there, um, the, the Danish police came and got him and took him to, to Denmark for Copenhagen for a year. Then he went to Italy for a year and 
and he was finally let out and decided that he was going to uh, knock over one big last job. That was the, the uh, Asprey Jewelers in, in Mayfair um, in London, which was the, it's the Queen's Jewelers. And it was regarded – this is 1990, mind you. It was regarded as impregnable now. There were cameras all over the place and um, he was a known face in, in the area from his earlier exploits. But uh, he pulled it off and he, uh, they got about $2 million worth of, of jewellery in the first heist. Um, Asprey, in its normal way, uh, refused to admit that it had been robbed. So they put an almost identical necklace in the front window now to say that they didn't get us. Here's, here's this necklace. It's all wrong. <laughs> so, so Arthur said, well... Uh, you know, we'll we'll show you guys. So they got a truck and they welded a girder to the back of it and um, backed into the window and stole that one as well. <laughs> <laughs> and they got away with it. They got away with it. Yeah, he got away with it. And uh, you know, he. Um, but the funny thing was that uh, that was they they made about six million Australian dollars out of that, maybe a bit more. But there were so many people involved in the heist, at least ten to fifteen people. And in their world back then, everyone was equal. Everyone played their part. There was an equal share. So when they'd actually sold all the diamonds, um, and you get about one-fifth. If you sell that big diamond ring you're wearing, uh, Cameron, you'll actually get one-fifth of its value because that's the myth of diamonds, that, 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 that they're worth much more than you think. They're actually not that worth that much at all. Um, it's the whole De Beers um, cartel that, that, that you know restricts supply and markets them heavily and creates this value. The jewel thieves know the real value. They get a fifth. So, you know, he got about probably about a million, a little bit less, um, and uh, he liked to party, our Arthur. He did. And um, so by the time he got back to Australia, there was virtually nothing left. So his wife was very upset about this because she'd been waiting for years for him to <laughs> buy a house, settle down, you know. But um, so she, uh, he, he finally said, okay, I'll go into drugs. All right, I'll go into drugs. He bothered me. He hated drugs, thought it was awful, but – it was quick, easy money, and he organised a, a massive shipment of hash from um, uh, probably Afghanistan, I think, and uh, was, did the deal in Amsterdam and was on his way home. Thought I'll stop off in Bangkok to see a few old friends. I'm not feeling very well. I'll have a day there to relax. And he's, he's by the pool there with a nice young lady, and um, one thing led to another, and um, huge heart attack, dead. Wow. Yeah. So crime didn't pay, but at least there was a happy ending. Boom, boom. <laughs> it seems to be a common thing, though, with your uh, these stories that you tackle that that crime doesn't necessarily pay. Obviously, you know, it wasn't a happy ending for Carl Williams. Not a happy ending necessarily for Mr. Delaney either. No, it never is. I mean, it, it just it just never is. I mean, it's just uh, it's false and empty crime, and there's no doubt about that. And and uh, you know, uh, I mean, looking at uh, say Roberta Williams and what she's had to go through since Carl's death. I mean, she's got she's got no money. She's flogging her story to various media outlets to make a quid. Um, she'll end up back in crime, you know. She wants to turn a new leaf, but uh, you know the the cards are stacked against you when you when you've been in that world. Uh, people don't want to welcome you into their circles, you know. You're a criminal. Um, if she's got no money, who paid for his thirty thousand dollar gold coffin? Yeah, fifty thousand. I hear actually, but uh, yeah, good point. Good point. I mean, you know, it may well be that they spent their last dollar on that, but I doubt it. Um, I, I would say that she's probably tapped some people on the shoulder and said, "Listen, I know a lot about you." And you're running around and, you know, you were Carl's mate. How about you chip in here? Otherwise, you know, something else might turn up somewhere else about you, you know. So that, that, that's, that's my theory on it. And, and um, But, you know, I mean, the, the gold coffin to me was such a metaphor. And I'm into metaphor being a writer, you know. But there it is. It's, it's, it's gold, but it's gold plated. It's brass underneath. 
know, <laughs> says it all, doesn't it? It's all about show. Um, there was a story in the Sunday Herald Sun today uh, about uh, Carl being released from prison to go and hang out with some hookers by the cops sneaking him out. Yeah, what, what, uh, there's a lot of these weird hints in the mainstream media since Carl died, and, and since he went into prison, I guess, about strange uh, deals that he seemed to have with the police. You mentioned a few before. Uh, yeah. is, is there something that we're not being told in the oh, papers? This is, this is the state of suppression here in Victoria. There's so many suppression orders. They're, 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 they're issued willy-nilly. It's almost that the, the, jury, the jury system doesn't work and we, and we can't trust juries to sort between what's media hype and what's evidence. I find it remarkable that, we, that we've actually given up that, that very important principle of justice in Australia. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I know the, the, whole, the whole Carl on holidays. He had two holidays, actually. Um, he, he, they were going down to a, um, a place called Swan Island, uh, down near Geelong, where there's an SAS base and there's also there's a military brig there, and it was just it was a symptom of how keen the police were to get him to help, you know, um, and they were willing to do almost anything because it was about cleaning the system up. And again, if if you can do it by a few selected prosecutions, put a few crook coppers in jail, you avoid the need for a full judicial inquiry. Looks much better if you can do it that way. It's much more controlled. And the government who's appointed you as police commissioner will be very pleased with you and may well renew your contract. So I think it's a craven thing. I think deals with murderers are just way off, way off limits. Um, you, you, you really do elevate them to some level that they don't deserve. And certainly, Carl, that was the case. I mean, he was – there were hookers going down. There were girls going in. There was his girlfriends, whatever. Um, there was pizzas. There was – you know, it was a holiday, a furlough, you know. Um, and um, it probably would have had another one this coming year had he not checked out on, in, in this untimely fashion. You know, it, it certainly didn't elevate my feeling of confidence in the Victorian state government after Carl was murdered and obviously all of these conspiracy theories are running around about who had him killed and why and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And for the Premier, John Brumby came out with some statements about, no, we're not holding a Royal Commission inquiry into, you know, this guy was a murderer, good riddance kind of thing. It just it just smelled like I don't know cover up to me. I did, and it, and it really and it was disingenuous because no one was saying that there should be a royal commission into why Carl was killed in jail. I mean, people die in jail. It's a it's a brutal place. But the whole circumstances of the deals, the background. There's much more to come out. There's another lawyer down here, for instance, uh, and she's just come out. Um, Nicola Gobbo, who got too close to the crims, and and the police leaned on her to now uh, to record evidence against them and also other people as well um, and they were going to protect her and so forth and it never happened and she's now suing them for $300,000 and her career's ruined and all that kind of stuff. So there's just been some very unpleasant things go on in, in, in this rush to get some summary justice rather than having a, a deep and lasting effect uh, that would come from a royal commission that looked at the role of corrupt police in the entire gangland war, which looked at the way that uh, police did strange deals with people that, uh, that, uh, that really are just, if the public knew about them, they wouldn't like, you know? And I think that's the thing, is that the public has been largely kept out of the discussion. The journos know what's going on. I know what's going on. Um, but people don't, and I think they deserve to because they're the ones that elect governments. It's not journalists. We have one vote, but the public needs to know the quality of justice in their state. So what do we need to do, do you think, as the general public uh, to get the state government to take that seriously? 
I think we've got to make sure that we have, you know, we have. Um, uh, I like the, uh, the the hung parliament model, to be honest. You know, I like that where where people can come in there if they're good people, independents, who can actually force the government to do things, you know, and make them deal with them, you know, um, because you'll find that uh, the, the the major parties don't want to do this. It's 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 too much of a headache, you know. It really you have to get people in there, almost like citizens advocates, who will then um, who will say, no, I'm not going to sign that deal in healthcare unless we get this, you know. Um, and this sort of stuff. So I think it's got to it's got to happen at the state level. Um, I think we just got to the media's got to be a bit more proactive. Um, yeah, things like that. Do you think the media really wants uh, this to be overturned? Uh, like they, they wants these ro- rocks to be overturned? Is is there? Well, we certainly want suppression to be taken away because it makes our jobs a lot harder. There's so no tell me, tell me more about the suppression. Who's suppressing the media and why? And how does it work? It, it, there's probably four or five Supreme Court judges. Whenever there's anything to do with a gangland situation, they slap a suppression order on it that says you cannot uh, name anybody, you can't name the case, you can't name any aspect of it uh, until we say so. And so you've got um, you know various villains. I mean, I don't know if this goes into Victoria, but there's there's one name that no one can mention in, in Victoria. Um, and he's doing deals all over the place. Um, he's, he's, he's gotten off a couple of his, his um, trials, uh, we, but we don't know that. The public doesn't know it. So it's a very strange situation. As I say, I mean, I think, I think juries are very robust. Uh, you know, myself, I think, I think human beings tend to be persuaded by the last thing they were told, not the most powerful thing. So when you're in court and you're presented with the evidence you, and, you, and there's 12 of you in a room, you can sort pretty quickly through what's media hype what's been a beat up and what's evidence. I think uh, in this case it's been proven that juries take more time deliberating in these uh, high-profile cases. We're saying this is the justification for the suppression orders that come down from the judges, that they don't want you talking about the case because it could influence the jury? It'll poison the jury's mind. that They are so thick and so persuade, you know, gullible that they'll just take what we say as gospel. But no one believes what's in the media anyway, so they can't have it both ways. They're always saying we make everything up, you know. So um, I think it's disingenuous, and I think it's just a patronising sort of uh, position. Um, and it, it, just, it just goes to show that they really – it's not about proving a case beyond reasonable doubt. It's about getting a conviction. And that's not the way law, you know, the, uh, the law should work. It's not, it, it's not a fact-in, verdict-out kind of scenario. It's about testing the evidence and making sure that someone's got a fair trial, that, that all the evidence has been properly adduced, and um, if they get off, well, so be it. That's the way the system works. I mean, how far and wide does the corruption in the system go, though, Adam? I mean, you've, you've talked about corrupt cops. Does it go up as far as uh, senior police? Does it go up as far as politicians? Does it go up as far as judges? I mean, where does it start and stop? Well, I, I can't even speak for Victoria. I, I mean, I, I don't think we've got high-level corruption in, in the judiciary. Um, you know, we have, we certainly have um, uh, senior police officers who who went through this era when the drug squad was completely corrupted, and they were the ones that, that made the policy decisions. Yet they've never been called to account. No one above the rank of sergeant has been charged with anything. Yet there are superintendents and inspectors and so forth who are in charge of these things and failed their duty of care, not just to the public, but also to their officers they sent and put in peril. Um, so that, that's that been there. Um, you know, I mean, the corruption is more subtle, I think, though, than that. It's, it's uh, I mean, I think the <laughs> when you do deals with murderers, it's corrupt. 
You know, when you when you abandon principles of justice in order to get politically favourable outcomes, that's corruption. You know, uh, I think we've got to have a, a much a much less partial system, one that one that is transparent, one that shows how it works, and then we, we might get somewhere. And you think the media could play a bigger role in that if it were, had more freedom to talk about stuff that it knows? Absolutely. I mean, I've been, you know, I've sat in lawyers' offices numerous times this year alone with stories that trying to get around suppression orders, you know, trying to find a way to tell a story that's in the public interest. I mean, the story that, um, that, uh, uh, that Carl Williams' kid's school, fee was a good, school fees were going to be paid was around for four or five months before it finally got out. And I'd had a version of it and I tried to run it and we couldn't. Um, the, uh, the Herald Sun ended up getting a document which, which helped them get it over the line. But they were still, and they're still, that's the funny thing, they're still in potential um, for a contempt charge even though he's dead. And the prosecution that he was involved with is all but dead as well. So uh, it's, a, it's, it's a system of control as much as it is a, um, uh, you know, a, a safeguard. I, I, I got to say, I mean, and I know that I, uh, I'm fairly cynical on such matters, but, you know, the level of faith that I have in the mainstream rep- uh, media to tell me anything that's going on accurately is very low as well. I mean, every time there's a survey on uh, how much the general public trusts certain professions, journalists usually come out well below politicians and insurance salesmen. Uh, I mean, do, do you think that there's a there's a a battle there in the mainstream media to actually increase its credibility as well? Oh, I think for sure. I mean, it's uh, obviously we've got to play our role constructively and, and, and do the right thing. And, and, and you're right. I mean, that, we have, we have suffered a loss of um, credibility in, in, in recent years, but, uh, but that, that, that isn't to say that people don't start out with the right intentions. Um, but I think it's, it's difficult if you, if you're not able to get the, the original data, you can't even discuss it. Then it's, you're really not part of the debate. King of Thieves, where can people buy it, Adam? Well, at all good bookstores and even some crummy ones. <laughs> online? Do you, do you promote any particular online uh, store? No, well, no, no, it's all there. There's uh, the Allen & Unwin site, uh, which are the publishers. I think there's Amazon, Book Abyss, all those ones. It's all there. But, you know, eBay. I mean, I just uh, – but you know what? Interesting, you know, eBay, they're already on eBay. I can't believe that, you know? <laughs> Uh, mate, well, listen, uh, thanks for coming on and having a chat. It was fascinating to hear an insider's uh, perspective on a lot of these things. We didn't get to talk about uh, religion, which is I was hoping we could get to. Maybe uh, we can do another one in the next week or so and get on to religion. Absolutely, if I'm not struck down before then. <laughs> Lovely, good stuff. Thank you, Mr. Shen. Uh, uh, in terms of uh, promoting your online activities, where can people read your stuff on the interwebs? Uh, you active on Twitter? No. I'm on right. Facebook. I'm on Facebook. Yeah. But I'm, you know, you know, I'm one of these Luddites that sort of still, you know, likes to feel the, the paper between my fingers, I think. Um, so, no, listen, I should, I should think more about that, you know. I should, I should get with the 21st century, but, you know. You write a blog? No. <laughs> All right, good stuff. Well, you're on this show. That's the important thing. That's it. Thank my you. First, Mr. Mate, it's my first step into the brave new world. That's exciting. Thank you, Mr. Shand. Adam Shand, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, Cameron. Thank you.